listening to the weekly podcast presented by the Lighthouse Midlothian. For more information, please visit us at www.dfwlighthouse.org. Thank you and God bless. since I've taught, and uh, we've had some awesome awesome stuff happening, but I just wanted to review very quickly the premise that we laid a few weeks ago. The premise that we laid was, our unity has been given us through Christ Jesus, and it was not of our own making. It was something that we received, and it is something that is brought to manifestation by the Holy Spirit working through each of us. Our unity could never arise from a work that has to be accomplished. It has to flow out of a work already accomplished. It's a temple not built by human hands, but it's a temple built by the Lord. And unless the Lord builds the house, the workers, of course, labor in vain. Now, Jeremy, if you could put that first slide up. We derived a definition for unity based out of Psalms 133, and I'm just going to review it very quickly. That was that psalm where it said, just as the anointing oil flowed over the top of Aaron's head, over his beard, and down to his shoulders, just as the waters from Mount Hermon work their way down to the hills of Judea, so it is when brothers dwell in unity. How wonderful it is. Unity is as an anointing oil that consecrates and anoints, and it flows from the top which is Jesus, and it flows over the body of Christ. Unity is like the life-giving waters of Mount Hermon, which was at the north, the northern end of Israel. Thanks, brother. And those life-giving waters would flow down over the hills of Judea and bring life. Unity is the consecration of men and women to accomplish God's work upon the earth with an authority bestowed by anointing, operating from a position of security and provision. In Christ, we have received all of the blessings of unity. And through the Holy Spirit, we have all we need to live out our unity. Now, we have been outfitted to rule and reign as ambassadors of Christ. We have the calling and the authority to represent and to make manifest the divine order, the divine rule, and the divine reign of our Father in heaven. But there is a villain. And we know this villain, and we have many names for this villain. None of those names matter here. Other than to say, we need to understand that Satan, or the accuser, hates with a Every fiber of his being hates the order of God. And that's what we represent, isn't it? He despises the union that God has restored with creation. You see, it is the very order and union of creation with our creator that brings glory to our Father God. We are his glory. He is our boast. And as long as God is receiving the glory... What's Satan? He's nothing but a chump. And he hates it. See, we would not be wise 
to underestimate his schemes and devices. 2 Peter 5, 6 states that we are to be self-controlled and alert for our enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 11 warns that we should be careful. We need to, be, we need to remain aware of the devil's schemes and devices. It doesn't say we need to figure them out. It says we need to remain aware of them implying that we should already know what he's about. Our enemy has had some success with his schemes. He was successful in frustrating God's order and union through Adam and Eve. For millennia, he has held power and sway over God's creation. It was a power given him by idol worship and our idol minds. Deriving his own twisted glory from subverting God's natural order. It wasn't just a lot of hot air when Satan, what's up brother? When Satan tempted by Jesus, when Satan was tempted, I'm sorry, when Satan tempted Jesus, by offering him authority over all earthly kingdoms and their splendor. That wasn't hot air. Jesus even referred to him more than once as being the prince of this world. It wasn't hot air. Satan carried an authority, but it was not given him from God, and he did not carry it intrinsically. He was given it by idol worship and idol minds. But then through the cross... Through the cross, Jesus came and upset the plans of this so-called prince. And today, this is what we're going to talk about. In one fell swoop, Jesus stripped the rulers of darkness of their contrived authority. He restored our destiny as children of God and reinstituted God's rule and reign over creation. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God's design is always so Elegant. And I, I, for one, I love irony. I just love it. It, it just, oof. And it's probably not the good part of me that loves it. I, I just like irony. Because, and I, I naturally, my disposition, I, I tend to be predisposition. I tend to be very sarcastic. And so irony just feeds right into that. But I have to believe that God has a very ironic side. And we're going to find out today why. Today, we are going to explore the incredible and very thoughtful design involved in the triumph of the cross. And I'm going to develop this perspective on God's elegant design through the book of Esther. Now, raise your hand if you know the story of Esther. I just want to get a gauge. It's okay if you don't. Just, okay, so about 75% of us. I am going to summarize... I'm going to summarize as best I can the story because it is the story in its entirety that I'm going to use to parallel what Jesus did on the cross. You guys with me on this? So I, I may not hit every detail, and I might miss the detail you love about the story, and my apologies to you. I don't mean to offend you. I just, I am summarizing the story to make a point. Now, we find there are three main characters in this story. Well, four. We have King Xerxes, 
which is the son of King Darius, who Daniel served. We have King Xerxes. We have Esther, the beautiful young Jewish woman. We have um, Mordecai. And Mordecai in this story plays a type or a foreshadowing of Christ in this, so keep this in mind. And then we have Haman. Yes. Oh, man, you got it, dude. Oh, that was good. Yeah, so whenever you hear Haman, you're going you're gonna to go. I mean, he's just got the stank of the devil all over him in this story. So you're going to see it. The who, the when, and the where. It's the people of Israel. God's chosen people are scattered throughout the Persian Empire. A few generations have passed since the kingdom of Judah was forced into exile from their homeland, and the city of Jerusalem was ransacked and torched. Mordecai is the great-grandson of a Jewish refugee from the exile, and he is raising and caring for his younger cousin, a beautiful young woman named Esther. Now, Esther's parents had died, and Mordecai raised her. The ruler of Persia, King Xerxes, sent orders that the most beautiful young women throughout the kingdom should be brought to him so that he could choose a wife. Esther was chosen out of the multitude, for the king was pleased with her beauty. But throughout the process of preparation for becoming the queen, Esther, this is key, Esther did not tell anyone that she was a Jew. Esther, oh, all along, Mordecai would wait near the palace at the king's gate, sending secret messages to Esther on the inside. It was during this time that Mordecai overheard the royal guards plotting to kill King Xerxes. He told this to Esther, who then informed the king, saving the king's life. But was Mordecai recognized for this? Mordecai would not be recognized or awarded for this act. Around this time, there was another nobleman, nobleman named, get ready, Haman. Man, dude, that was good. That was good. A man named Haman that the king trusted and honored above all other nobles. Haman was a proud and arrogant man who demanded the glory and praise of all that were beneath him. Now, this little caveat here, I'm not going to go into this, but there's a deeper meaning to this man's name, and he was a representation of the Amalekites. But we're not going to go there right now, but it's worth the extra study. It's really interesting. Haman was a proud and arrogant man, and it was not long before Haman noticed one man that would not bow. Anyone know who that man was? Mordecai. It's okay. I make that mistake, too. He seethed, seethed against Mordecai, and he wanted to kill him, but he was so envious and filled with hate that he didn't want to just stop at killing Mordecai. He wanted to eliminate, to annihilate all of the Jewish people. So Haman... devised a scheme. Sound like anyone else devising schemes. He misled King Xerxes by providing false evidence against the Jews, and the king gave his signet ring, a sign of authority, to seal. Remember, I don't know if they used wax, but they may have. Put some wax and use that signet ring. Bears the royal emblem, the authority to do something. He gave his signet ring to Haman. So Haman crafted a royal... Yeah, so Haman, so Haman crafted a royal decree for the annihilation of all Jews in the kingdom on a single day, the 13th day 
of the 12th month, which, if you are interested, for our calendar is April 17th. And it is the festival of Purim, if you are a Jew. But that is not part of today's point. He translated the decree into all, remember, there are many different people in all of these areas, many different languages. He translated the decree into all the various languages of the kingdom. When Mordecai heard of the royal decree to annihilate all the Jewish population, he told Esther that she had a golden opportunity to speak up for her people. And this is often the point of when we teach Esther. She was there for such a time as this. Esther would step out in faith, even though she was reluctant to do so at first. From Mordecai's urging, she would step out in faith and request permission to approach the king upon the threat of death. As we know, if we've heard the story, the king held out his scepter and granted her request. The request was that the king and Haman would attend her dinner. As the days continued, Mordecai persisted in his refusal to bow or rise in honor of Haman as he passed the king's gate. Haman had come to the point that he was no longer able to hold his hatred. He constructed a 75-foot-high gallows. A gallows where you hang someone from, right? And he planned to publicly hang Mordecai the following morning, the very next day. But then it happened. The king could not sleep. Isn't it such an innocuous thing that just turns a story around on its head, right? It's always such an innocuous thing. The king couldn't sleep. Who knows? Maybe he had some tummy trouble. It happens to me. I woke up and got some Tums last night. <laughs> it was just not, my stomach wasn't having it. He requested that the account of his reign be read to him, and it just so happened that the account read was that of Mordecai saving or revealing the conspiracy to assassinate the king. After discovering that Mordecai was never recognized or honored for this act, the king begins to think about how he could honor such a man. Oh, I love irony. Oh, mm. oh, sweet vengeance. Sorry, it's my fleshly side. Okay. And guess what happens? The king has been up all night. What do I do for the man that I want to honor? And who should walk in early in the morning? Oh, he, you know, Haman probably didn't sleep either. He was just, oh, I'm going to do this. Mm. So he wakes up early. He comes into the palace confidently walking in to request the public execution of Mordecai. And the king asks Haman, oh, I love it. Yeah. How should I honor the man that the king delights in? And Haman, because he thinks that it is himself that the king is honoring, sorry, because he thinks it's himself, human, uh, Haman proceeds to tell the king that this man should be clothed in the king's royal crest and robe, seated upon the king's own horse, led by the most noble prince of the land. Remember who the most noble prince of the land was? Haman. Yeah. Who would shout out before the horse and the rider, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Mm. And the king then replies, oh, oh, to be a fly on the wall, to see Haman's face in this moment. 
<laughs> the king replies, this is what I want you to do for Mordecai. Oh. <laughs> so after a day, <laughs> after a day of leading Mordecai around on horseback, this is what is done for the man, <laughs> for, the, for the man who the king delights to honor. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor all day long. <laughs> After a day of leading Mordecai around on horseback, <clears throat> the humiliated Haman, oh, it's got to be strong this time. He's, he's, the humiliated Haman would then be ushered into whose presence but the queen and King Xerxes for the next big reveal. Esther would reveal in this dinner, there were two dinners, but I'm summarizing. Esther would reveal that she herself was Jewish and that Haman was plotting to kill her and all of her family. The king gets up to consider this. To add insult to injury, when Haman falls onto the couch to beg Queen Esther to exonerate himself, King Xerxes whips around. <laughs> you would seek to molest the queen? That happened, yeah. Haman just can't get it right. <laughs> At that very moment, the guards put a bag over his head. And where do they lead him? Oh, but to the very gallows he constructed. Oh, oh. On the day Haman, on the day Haman planned to publicly hang Mordecai, he himself would be executed. And following Haman's execution, King Xerxes would give his signet ring and all of Haman's estate to Mordecai. This is good. And we're reaching the meat of this story. I know you see the apparent parallels here. Mordecai as a representation of Jesus. Haman, of course, as a representation of Satan. I want to explore some more parallels between the victory of Mordecai over Haman, and we're going to compare it with the triumph of Jesus on the cross. Number one, in both accounts, the people of God are scattered, and they're not able to represent God's rule and reign on the earth. We know that Jesus would even say how he longed to gather the children of Israel as a hen covers her chicks with her wings. In both accounts, we have a scattered people that are not able to represent or manifest, ooh, manifest the rule and reign of God on earth. Number two, Haman wants the glory for himself and will stop at nothing to acquire it. He hates any representation of rule or reign that is not his own. In the same way, Satan despises the order and union of creation under God because it is the manifestation of God's reign over the earth. 
Number three, Haman will stop at nothing to annihilate the chosen people of God. He devised a scheme to set it in motion and set it in motion. Satan crafted a scheme to foil God's reign over the earth by keeping the Israelites in a repeating cycle of idol worship and intermarriage with pagan cultures. By keeping them divided, we know from the Old Testament that they were never, ever able to really consummate, to use that word, to manifest what it meant to be God's chosen people. Number four, Mordecai and Esther represent intercession between the people and the king. Just as Jesus is our great intercessor between creation and our creator. And this is where, I just love this part. I want to go back and stress for a second because we really got to get it in our head. I, had to, I know I had to get it in my head. Representation is manifestation. Representation is manifestation. Okay? Representation carries with it consecration. It carries with it the anointing which represents the authority to act on behalf. You are a representative. Representation is the only way that we can manifest what it is to be on earth. So if we are representatives of Christ, we also are the representation, we are the manifestation of his rule and reign. Now, this is next week, but I wanted to stress this point. Marriage, family, brothers and sisters in unity, our stewardship of creation. These are the manifestations of our representation of Christ's authority on earth. And if we don't manifest those four areas, then the world is not going to see what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that the world would see me and you and you and me. That's next week, though. So... Haman knew the day had come. It was time to execute Mordecai. Satan knew the day had finally arrived. His plan to crucify the Messiah was coming to fulfillment. Jesus would be crucified on the cross. Satan thought he had won. His scheme had worked. And I want you to think about this. The devil is not a fool. He's many, many things. He's a chump, but he's not a fool. He was one of the most noble angels created. If you take to Isaiah's account, he was actually cast out of the presence of God for seeking glory for himself. He had succeeded time and again in subverting God's reign over creation. And if this were a chess game, any chess players, then a chess player knows the long game. The chess player knows how many moves ahead they're looking. And I think that Satan was very strategic in this. Look at the temptation in the desert. Jesus is tempted three times by Satan. And this temptation 
though it played a role in preparing Jesus for his work, I believe it played a secondary role. It informed Satan of something profound. Jesus was going to play by the rules. Jesus was going to play by the rules of being human. You'll remember that he was tempted three times. Jesus was not going to use his miraculous power to provide for himself. He would not change a stone into bread. Jesus was not going to invoke his glory to gain a following. He was not going to, even to the point, he would not protect himself from injury. If Jesus was going to play by the rules of being human, then the accuser knew how to devise his destruction. And the rulers of darkness knew something important. They knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew that God was going to institute his rule and reign through a son of David. They knew Jesus was the son of God. Remember the demons? Oh, they, knew, they all knew who he was. They knew he was the son of God. They knew how they were going to destroy him. They thought they knew. They thought they knew. <laughs> Haman was publicly humiliated and made a spectacle before Mordecai and all of the people. Haman was conquered by the very scheme he had devised. He would hang on the very gallows he built. I want you guys to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Take out your phone, take out your Bible. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. I'll give you a second to get there. This is good stuff, right? I've been pumped about teaching this. I had it like three weeks ago, and I've just been itching to I love this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And I want you to hear this next part. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's another verse, 2 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, But thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of of him. Now, scholars, I myself am not a biblical scholar, so I make it a point to study the commentary and to find where there is a consensus formed. So, me, in my, um, my layman's point of view, not knowing the Greek, I have to, I'm at the mercy of the consensus of commentaries. But I think we could all agree if we've done, stu if we studied this on our own. The verbiage and the words used here by Paul are both military in context. Many biblical scholars agree that the Greek words used here reflect a military victory. Paul uses imagery to give us a picture of how Jesus stripped the rulers of darkness 
of their authority. See, God made a show of them openly. As a conqueror returning from a victory displays in a triumphal procession the kings and princes whom he has taken in the spoils of the victory. This was commonly done when a triumph was declared for a conqueror. On such occasions, it sometimes happened that a considerable number of prisoners would be led along amidst the scenes of triumph. As the people would applaud and shout, incense would burn and fill the streets with fragrance of victory. Paul says that this was now done openly. That is, it was in the face of the whole universe. Now, it, it did not happen on earth. We did not see it physically, but in the spiritual realms. A grand victory, a glorious triumph over all the powers of hell. It was a grand victory achieved in view of the universe by which Christ, as a conqueror, dragged Satan and his legions in his triumphal procession. I want you guys to make a connection here, and I think you guys are seeing it. Haman was publicly humiliated and made a spectacle before Mordecai and all of the people. He was conquered by the very scheme he had devised, and he would hang on the gallows he built. In the same way, all the rulers of darkness were made a spectacle before the entire universe. They had been conquered by the very scheme they had devised, and they were exposed and humiliated by the cross of their own design. And this next part, guys, it's going to be an exercise of your imagination. And guys, I, I don't uh, indulge myself in imagining things too much. I like to stick to the scripture. But I want you to take a moment. I don't think this is wrong. I want you to imagine with me. You can close your eyes if you want. But given the imagery in the Bible, which Paul gives us, military in nature, and then given the fact that we are told by the Bible that there is a spiritual war raging at all times in the spiritual realm, our imagination may actually be better at capturing the reality of what happened here. And I want you guys to think about this. Ephesians says that we need to be reminded, I'm sorry, Paul shares that the mystery of God's manifold wisdom was hidden from all rulers and authorities of the spiritual realms. No one or thing saw this coming until it happened. And I want you to wrap your mind around this. This, this is a mystery. It was designed before the creation of all things. That's what Paul says. I don't know how it works, but that's what he said. It was set in motion before the creation of any of us. Before any of it happened, God saw it, and he designed it, but no one else in the spiritual realms would have seen this coming. I can see in my mind's eye the spiritual realm is silent. As Christ cries his last words in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You guys are imagining with me. 
all the legions of angels and all of the rulers and authorities of the spiritual realms are congregated somehow in an eternal dimension and they are all from their own vantage point beholding the prospect of Jesus on the cross. Silently wondering what the next move would be. Somber and perplexed that the Messiah had been crucified. And then it would happen. There would be a distant figure on the horizon. And as their eyes would adjust to focus, they would hear a voice clear and strong. Fling wide, you heavenly gates. <sighs> Lift up, you ancient doors. And there would be this moment, that moment when your brain is not yet grasped what your eyes behold or what your ears have heard. It would be a pause of bewilderment. And then the most deafening roar you could ever imagine. Sorry. As all of the angels recognize the prophetic song from Psalm chapter 24, they know it. They would all chant together. Fling wide, you heavenly gates. You guys say this with me. Fling wide, you heavenly gates. Lift up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may enter. Now, wait. I want you, this half to say, who is the king of glory? Ready? Who is the king of glory? You guys are next. Who is he? Who is this king of glory? Everyone. Mighty, he is the king of glory. Okay, so we got this deafening roar. You guys see it? Isn't this something? I mean, I'm just, we're using our imagination, but I think it happened this way. Huh? The procession would enter the gates, and a military ceremony would follow in which the leaders of darkness, the conquered ones, would come forward in their official military dress and regalia, and a symbol in line before the crucified Messiah. I need some help. Would you help me? Yeah. Chris, would you stand right here? There you go. You want to help me, Dylan? No? Okay. Uh, David. Okay. Gary. Just come up here. Okay, I'm sorry, guys, but you're going to have to represent the forces of darkness. <laughs> I'm, I apologize. I know. The procession would enter the gates. The powers of darkness would line up before the crucified Messiah, the conqueror, and before all of creation, our victorious King Jesus would step forward. I get to be Jesus. <laughs> but this, this was a practice at the time. I mean, you can look it up. I, I just want you to get an imagery of this. 
When it says he disarmed, that verb, disarmed the powers of darkness. You know, I mean, it's just like, yeah, I won. <laughs> what you going to do? Huh? Come on, big guy. <laughs> okay, sit down. Sit down. <laughs> okay. Oh, I love things, man. That scratch you. Sorry. <laughs> Don't beat me up. Before all of creation, our victorious King Jesus stepped forward and he tore off all signs of spiritual authority. And with that, they were left with no power. The idle minds, you, and we got to hear this because there are people here today. The people of Israel... We wonder sometimes, how could they be misled and deceived into idol worship every time? They were children. Their parents sinned, and the children were raised in it. They were raised in it. It is what they knew. The idol, the shrine would have been in their house. They didn't know anything different. Just think, three generations, four generations, five generations, how deep the idolatry would be, and the kids would not know the difference. And we're here. There's some of us here. I'm so sorry. That don't know the difference because we weren't given the chance. And we were born into enslavement. And you know who you are. Of course, we were born into the enslavement to sin. That's our flesh. But there were some that weren't even given a chance. <sighs> that grew up with that idol in their house. They grew up without both parents. I'm sorry. I just, I see my students. I'm sorry. I promised I wouldn't do this, but I just, I do this. I see my students. They don't know the difference because no one told them. But this is what happened. You have grown up with a shrine in your house. You have grown up worshiping an idol and finding your satisfaction in something other than God. God. This is what this means. That idol and that enslavement does not carry an authority over you. And this is what we need to accept in our heart, there is no power that can hold you other than what you give it. That's what this means. They have been stripped of the right and the authority to hold you. My apologies for the tears. In this moment, as Jesus strips all of that off of them, I think it began to dawn upon everyone present, the defeated and the victorious alike, that there were implications that they did not even see yet of what the cross had actually accomplished. And catch this. The rulers of darkness had such tunnel vision. They had such tunnel vision. They, see, they thought something else was happening. They thought that by crucifying the Messiah, the Jewish people 
would not be able to represent God on earth. That's what they thought. Okay, okay, so we're going to do the cross, guys. He's going to die. We're all going to be good. No more manifestation. We foiled him again. It did never occur to them that the very scheme they had concocted, get this, the very scheme they had concocted would not just reconcile the Jewish people. It was bigger. They blew their minds. They're like, what? All of creation has been reconciled to the creator by this act. Their their minds are blown. Angels as well. In Ephesians, it says that all the spiritual representation, the authorities and rulers, they didn't see it coming. Oh, my goodness gracious, it's not just Jews, it's Gentiles. And it's not just humans, it's all of creation. Mm. Remember in the gospel, would you come up, Jeremy? the gospel of Matthew, Jesus was accused of receiving his power from darkness. And I have to, I I just, I know what Jesus saw in his mind when he answered them. He could see what was going to happen. And this is what he says. They accused him of receiving his power from darkness. It is by the devil that you cast out demons. Jesus says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first tie up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. And I knew what Jesus saw. And he was smiling to himself. He said it in plain sight. No one knew what was going to happen. Remember how Haman Remember how Haman's estate and authority went to Mordecai? So now we too have become co-heirs with Christ, sharing in the glory of his triumph through the cross. Satan's estate and authority has been delivered to Christ. And therefore, there is now no power of darkness that can hold us back from entering into our inheritance. Okay, Jeremy. Lead us, please.